1836, the people of Texas found themselves sifting through the aftermath of a revolution, trying to find their place on the world stage and their home in an unforgiving frontier. They had, to say the least, a lot on their minds. But for settlers in the Navidad River bottoms, the hot topic of fireside talk and front porch debate was something more local and strange. Farmers were noticing handfuls of corn and sweet potatoes disappearing from their fields in the night. It was never much, rarely enough for a meager meal, a forgivable theft if someone were that hungry or desperate. But the frequency of the thefts began raising eyebrows, and as anyone might expect in a rural Texas community, people were starting to talk. Word of the phenomenon spread fast through settlements up and down the Navidad. But it wasn't just a few stolen potatoes that had folks talking. It was the footprints. Two distinct sets, one larger than the other, impressed in the damp soil around the site of every midnight theft, circling through the fields and disappearing into the dense forest beyond. Both barefoot, both human, depending on who you asked. Any attempt to follow the tracks into the woods was always cut short at the nearest tree line, where the dogs lost the scent, the footprints vanished in the underbrush, and the trail went cold. There was no shortage of theories whispered among the locals, but the more rational the explanation, the more quickly it seemed to fall out of favor in the popular imagination. Something that, even now, nearly two centuries later, we can unfortunately still relate to. It didn't take long for speculation among the settlers to drift from the plausible into the supernatural. What if the perpetrators of these bizarre thefts, these intruders who emerge from the woods in the dead of night to stalk the riverside while we sleep, what if these footprints aren't human at all? Whoever or whatever it was, the slaves in the area had a name for it, something they whispered fearfully among one another anytime some tools or a handful of crops went missing in the night. The thing, they called it. The thing that comes. I'm Ryan Sheffield. And I'm Brad Dewar. And this is Texarkana. In 1830, a group of families, friends, and their slaves made the 800-mile journey from Alabama to the Texas Gulf Coast, hoping to build a new life for themselves on the outskirts of the Austin colony. Their journey's end found them at the watershed between the Navidad and Lavaca Rivers in modern-day Jackson County. It was the heart of the Blackland Prairies, where centuries of wildfire and controlled burns by the natives had cultivated a rich, fertile soil blackened by the ash. It made for a stunning landscape. Vast prairies edging on dense forests, inching over hills, sinking into swamps, and riven by rivers winding their way to the coastal sands. A true frontier wilderness, beautiful, complex, and unforgiving. The settlers looked out on the endless acres before them and saw a land ripe for redemption. Like most Anglo-Americans at the time, they saw nature and civilization as a kind of dichotomy. 
They believed if this land were ever going to be a proper, pious civilization, a new Alabama, they'd have to deliver it from its own savage, natural state. These untamed wilds, they thought, were just begging to be broken, bridled, and dragged to salvation. But they soon found out the hard way that wild Texas wasn't so easily brought to heel, and nature's retribution came swift and hard. Within the first few years, a majority of the settlers were stricken with the fever and chills of malaria. At least a dozen died from the disease, including the wife and son of Reverend Samuel Rogers. Rogers was one of the more prominent figures in the Alabama settlement, a respected member of the Texian army, a Methodist preacher, and working-class farmer. Like most of the Navidad settlers, he was poor, just barely scraping by in this perilous new world. The dangers and tragedies of the frontier cut across all walks of life, but the wealthier settlers, like Merchant George Sutherland, were still better off than most. In a way, it was kind of like a tale of two settlements, a Dickensian story writ large in Sutherland's privilege and Roger's anguish. The Blackland soil, rich as it was, yielded next to nothing that first year, and the settlers resorted to foraging in the woods to survive the winter. Shipments of supplies eventually arrived from the east, but only the wealthiest could afford the cost of freight. The settlers lived in a constant state of fear. The hazards of the frontier and the pangs of hunger were only compounded by the ever-present risk of Indian raids. But in the minds of Texians in the 1830s, and to some extent still to this day, the greatest threat to the Texian way of life didn't come from the dark recesses of the woods, but from their own government. Texas had been a state in the Republic of Mexico for nearly two decades before the Alabama settlers first set foot near the Navidad. It was a country rife with political corruption and turmoil, and the Congress had enacted a law only months earlier to restrict immigration from the United States and raise taxes. But it was the abolition of slavery that pushed the colonial Texians to the brink of revolt. In the aftermath of a coup in 1832, Mexico found itself in need of a new leader, someone who could finally put an end to the rampant corruption and pave a new path forward. But what they got was a demagogue, a decorated general propelled into the national spotlight by his victories over the Spanish, used his celebrity status and outsized personality to defeat his rivals and seize the presidency. His name was Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, a flamboyant, self-aggrandizing narcissist who was far more preoccupied with his image and reputation than he was with the actual duties of his office. Something else that, 200 years later, we can still kind of relate to. He delegated the vast majority of his responsibilities to his vice president, Valentin Gomez Farias, who seized the opportunity to toss out the Constitution, shut down the state legislatures, outlaw militias, and instate martial law. Insurrections broke out in 12 states, but most were swiftly and brutally put down by the new president's loyal army. Just to give you an idea. In May of 1835, Santa Ana stormed the rebel state of Zacatecas, where he crushed the insurgents, executed the leaders, and gave his soldiers two days to pillage the capital as they pleased. More than 2,000 civilians were killed, and the city was left in ruins. By the summer of 1835, the Alabama settlers found themselves front and center in the politics of revolution. Samuel Rogers himself was the secretary of the Lavaca Navidad meeting, where a kind of informal declaration of independence was drafted. Nothing ever came of it, but it hardly mattered at that point. Texian rage had reached the boiling point. War was inevitable. 
and imminent. The first shots of revolution rang out that October in the town of Gonzales, just 40 miles west of the Navidad, spurring the Alabama settlers to join the Texian army in droves. Quick side note, you may have noticed that we're using the term Texian rather than Texan, which might sound strange to those of you who didn't recite the Texas Pledge of Allegiance every morning in elementary school. So, in the interest of clarity. At the time, white settlers were referred to as Texians, and Mexican settlers, especially those sympathetic to revolution, were known as Tejanos. Once Texas joined the Union, all Texans, no matter who they are or where they came from, are just plain old Texans. Santa Ana and his followers were convinced that the uprisings in their states were entirely the fault of the Texians and their American agitators. For him, it was a matter of nationalist honor. Mexico was under attack by dangerous foreigners, people who had been generously allowed into their country only to eschew its customs, evade its laws, and desecrate its heritage. And some of them, I'm sure, were good people. Taking it upon himself to lead the charge, Santa Ana vowed to bring a swift and decisive end to the Texian insurrection. But Santa Ana's hubris clouded his judgment. His army was low on supplies, and like his administration, it was riddled with corruption. Santa Ana's ego and short-sightedness would eventually be his undoing, but that road to self-defeat would still be one paved in carnage and cruelty. In December 1835, Congress issued a decree. Any foreigners fighting against Mexican troops under no recognized flag will be deemed pirates and dealt with as such. Executed on sight. Santa Ana's message to the rebels was clear. In the battle for Texas independence, there would be no surrender and no hope for mercy. In the months that followed, Santa Ana's armies carved a path of destruction and slaughter throughout the state. Their directive was a simple one, win at all costs. Crush the rebellion and execute the survivors. Civilian lives and property are fair game, and if a structure has no value to us, burn it to the ground. Samuel Rogers was stationed at the Alamo as Santa Ana's forces began circling the perimeter. You probably know the story, or at least a version of it. Like most stories about Texas, no matter what you've heard, rest assured, at least half of it is true. As the morning sun shone through the cannon smoke on the 13th day of the siege, nearly every man in the old Spanish mission, over 200 by most counts, lay dead in the sand. Every corpse was systematically run through with a bayonet, and the blood-frenzied soldiers spent more than 15 minutes emptying their rifles into the towering stacks of bodies. Six or seven men are said to have survived the battle and surrendered, including maybe, possibly, the infamous Davy Crockett. The prisoners were pushed to their knees in front of the terrified women and children and shot in the head. George Sutherland's son, William, was among the dead. Rogers, ironically, was spared that fate. In a rare stroke of luck and a life otherwise fraught with misfortune, he was called away before the standoff became a siege and returned home safely to the Navidad. His luck, however, was short-lived. Texas had officially declared independence during the siege, prompting Santa Ana to order a full-force invasion to quash the rebellion in one final fell swoop. They drew up plans to march north, a path that would lead them directly through the Alabama settlement. The commander of the Texian forces, Sam Houston, yes, that Houston, ordered a full military retreat to the Sabine River along the Louisiana border. 
all settlers were ordered to evacuate their homes at once and seek shelter behind Texian army lines. Soldiers loaded everything that they could carry into wagons, and anything they couldn't take with them, they burned. But word of the civilian evacuation traveled slow, and by the time Houston's messengers reached the Gulf, the Mexican army was already closing in. The Alabama settlers had only a matter of hours to frantically gather whatever supplies they could, and run. The harrowing exodus would come to be known as the runaway scrape, and the physical, financial, and emotional toll it took on the survivors was beyond measure. After nearly a month on the run, Houston's army managed to stage a surprise attack on Santa Ana's camp in San Jacinto. With an explosion of rifle fire, the Texians swarmed the barricades. The Mexican soldiers were caught off guard and instantly overwhelmed. They quickly gave up any attempt to fight and fled for their lives. Frenzied with vengeance, the Texian forces refused to relent. Calls for ceasefire were drowned in the chorus of battle cries and the ghastly shrieks of the dying. The desperate pleas of the Mexican soldiers, me, no Alamo, were met only with the merciless crack of gunshots. In a matter of 18 minutes, 650 Mexican infantrymen lay dead in the marshland and 300 more were captured, including Santa Ana himself. Only 11 Texians died in the battle. In exchange for his life, Santa Ana agreed to surrender and ordered his army's retreat south of the Rio Grande. The war was over and Texas had won its independence. There, under an oak tree in a swamp, choked in the haze of rifle smoke and the stench of blood. The Alabama settlers of the Navidad were finally able to make the long journey home. But what they came home to was a nightmare. Their crops and livestock were decimated. Their houses and barns razed to the ground. Everything they'd built in those five agonizing years was gone. George Sutherland said at the time, God only knows how we will make out. But thanks to his wealth, he was one of the lucky ones. Samuel Rogers returned home to a barren field, all but one of his 100 cows gone, and a crumbling husk where his house once stood. His only remaining weapon was a crooked musket, and his every attempt to hunt ended in failure. He soon buried his second wife while his children watched, trembling in starvation. He had only one remaining asset to his name, the 120 acres of land he'd been awarded for his service in the war. In desperation, he traded it all, for a half a barrel of spoiled flour. Rogers would later write, How often did I think I was a godforsaken creature? And how long did I travel under the shadow of sorrow? If there ever was a time that caused me to almost wish that I had never been born, it was then. And whether by happenstance or need, it was around that time that another godforsaken creature appeared in the Alabama settlement one that walked unseen in the moonlight and left nothing behind but footprints in the mud. And for Samuel Rogers, it became an obsession. Over the next decade, Rogers would become one of the most frequent targets of the Midnight Thieves, and he sought tirelessly to track them down. He collected every story and eyewitness account, followed every lead. He was convinced there were at least three of them, based on his reading of the footprints and he even claimed to have stumbled upon their abandoned camps several times over the years. No one ever corroborated his discoveries, and he never returned home from his hunts with anything more than a story. 
Still, being a respected veteran, political activist, and preacher, he was a man with a decent amount of credibility. But he was also a man traumatized and tormented by a life of violence, grief, and misery. A man who might have been looking for someone or something to blame or punish for his own strife and misfortune. And he wasn't alone. When Texas was annexed by the United States in 1845, tales of mysterious, human-like savages living just outside the boundaries of civilization were kind of becoming a thing. Stories of so-called wild men were appearing regularly in newspapers, not just in Texas, but all over the country. Arkansas, Louisiana, Oregon. Wild men were, in a 19th century kind of way, trending. Washington, Oklahoma, Wisconsin. And that was due in no small part to the advent of the penny press. Before the 1830s, newspapers were mostly a highbrow luxury for the rich urban elite. They were dense, tedious, hyper-partisan, and practically useless to the common man, especially in frontier territories like Texas. And they were expensive. At six cents per issue, a paper full of highfalutin language about the distant wonkery of Washington wasn't exactly an easy sell to the working class. So when the penny press cropped up in the mid-1830s, it immediately became a national sensation. The papers were written in simplistic language and focused on local issues and human interest stories, sports, horoscopes. And thanks to their use of cheap supplies, the papers only cost one cent per issue, bringing the news within the reach of a broad new audience. The penny press revolutionized journalism and laid the groundwork for our modern media landscape, for better and worse. They targeted the untapped markets of immigrants and the poor and introduced an immediacy and localization to the news that at the time was completely unheard of and that today we can't imagine living without. But competition was fierce and it was still an uphill battle to convince folks like those in the Navidad that a newspaper was worth their hard-earned cash. It wasn't long before the editors discovered a marketing tactic that we know all too well today. Sensationalism sells. The penny press brought journalism to the people, but it brought with it gossip, exaggeration, hoaxes, and hearsay. Fake news. Tales of wild people in the woods swept across America, and for people in the Navidad river bottoms, those weird footprints they kept finding in their crop fields suddenly seemed a lot more interesting. Reports of the strange midnight crop thefts persisted, but at some point in the mid-1840s, one key detail in the stories changed. Now there was only one set of footprints, the small ones. What happened to the others? Around that same time, a group of hunters stumbled upon some bones protruding from beneath a pile of sticks and leaves deep in the woods. Brushing aside the dirt and debris revealed the intact remains of what appeared to be an unclothed adult male. Human, in case you were wondering. But as local historian Martin McKinney put it, Nothing was noticed by which race or nation could be determined. There was no obvious cause of death, but to the hunters at least, one thing was clear. This was a burial. Crude, primitive, and hastily made, sure. But intentional. Reverent. This wasn't just some dude who happened to drop dead on a hike through the woods. This was a grave. After the discovery of the remains, sightings of the smaller footprints not only persisted, but increased. Like, a lot. Local news outlets, having sensed a looming threat to their bottom line, 
began adopting some of the more gonzo methods of their penny press competitors. What might normally have been overlooked as just a run-of-the-mill raccoon hole or rock impression or soil shifted by the rain suddenly took on a whole new meaning. Look closely. Can you see it? Of course, some people just wanted the publicity, perpetrating hoaxes and hoping to get their picture on the front page. Others were totally convinced, scouring their fields for patterns that weren't there, jimmy-rigging a divine plan from nature's random chaos, straining to discern faces from the ambiguous shapes in the dark. They just wanted to believe. And that's when things get weird. It was a bright, moonlit summer night. The doors and windows opened wide and hoped that the lingering Texas heat might ride off on the breeze. The dogs were on the porch, dozing with one eye open, even in dreams keeping vigilant watch for trespassers and wildcats, ready to leap into action at the slightest sign of danger, come what may. And that night, it did. As the family gathered in the kitchen for breakfast the next morning, they came to an unnerving realization. Someone had been inside their house while they slept, and this was no ordinary burglary. Whoever did this had to step directly over the sleeping dogs without stirring so much as a whimper. They had to make their way halfway through the house without faltering, without rousing the family or attracting the attention of their well-armed farmhands. And with only the dim light of the moon to see, they had to escape right back out just the same. It was impossible. It was inhuman. Stranger still, this burglar, if they could call it that, came and went without touching the family's valuables at all. The guns and saddle gear stacked on the porch, the heirloom gold watches plainly displayed above the fireplace, the silverware in the cupboard, the children asleep in their beds. In fact, the only evidence an intrusion even happened at all was just a plate of meat and a slab of butter the family had left out in the kitchen the night before. Half of each was missing, both divided carefully, neatly, and equitably, right down the middle. Similar reports of unexplained home invasions began pouring in from all corners of the watershed. The penny press ate it up, and it's easy to blame them for encouraging copycats with the promise of credulous publicity. But whether the incidents were fact, fiction, or delusion, they were definitely becoming more creative. A local woodworker reported the theft of a handsaw, a drawing knife, and some other tools from his workshed, which he'd admittedly left open one hot summer night. A few weeks later, he went into the shed to find all the stolen tools returned to their original place, each one polished, in the words of the woodworker, as bright as a looking glass. Witnesses later told the press, no one knew this familiar metal was so susceptible to such gloss, nor did anyone know the process by which it was affected. So, as you might expect, that raised a few questions. The tools that were stolen, when taken together, didn't make any sense. What's the thing need them? Maybe he's trying to build something. Shelter, maybe a wrap. Maybe it's some balls thread. A few weeks later, the woodworker's neighbor was shocked to discover an expensive log chain had disappeared from his plantation. The chain was 12 feet long and weighed more than 30 pounds. No one could possibly have made off with such an unwieldy, clanking chain without being seen or heard. It just wasn't possible. He interrogated his slaves, but they just shrugged and told him, quote, that thing what comes must have took it. The owner flew into a rage and screamed, If I ever whip the 
the Negro for being a fool, I'd skin this one. That was the censored version of the quote. A few days later, on another moonlit night, the thing came once more. It stepped over the sleeping dogs, traversed the entire plantation home without notice, and found a pan of milk, two loaves of bread, and a plate of butter in the pantry. The intruder neatly divided the butter, took one loaf, and poured exactly half the milk into a pitcher, then disappeared. The plantation owner once again grilled his slaves about the theft, and once again got the same answer. The thing that comes. Two weeks later, the owner stepped out onto his front porch and found his log chain, meticulously coiled up right next to the missing milk pitcher, both scored and polished to uncanny perfection. We couldn't find any written record of the owner's reaction to getting owned, but we like to imagine it was pretty satisfying, especially if he believed one of the more popular wild person theories of the time. Runaway slaves from a nearby plantation fleeing to freedom stealing only what they need to survive and avoiding any whites or fellow slaves who might see them return to chains. But for a lot of settlers, the theory just didn't hold water. The footprints found at the sites of the thefts were small, and if the wild people really were runaway slaves, their feet would be, as McKinney put it, ill-formed, flat, and large. That kind of absurd, racist conjecture is obviously ridiculous to us. But for the Texians, it was just common sense, or maybe, more accurately, a convenient way to dismiss their own gnawing insecurities and existential dread. Stephen F. Austin once said, Texas must be a slave country. Yes, that Austin. For him, it wasn't an opinion so much as a practical reality. The only way they could recreate the stability and prosperity of their homeland, the antebellum South, was to implement the same economic model the cost-free labor of the enslaved. When abolition became law in Mexico, Texians began forcing their slaves to sign fake contracts, declaring themselves 99-year indentured servants. It was bullshit. And it worked. The Mexican authorities, themselves already steeped in a culture of corruption and violence, were more than happy to look the other way. And by the 1850s, nearly half the people living and working in the Texas colonies were bound in chains. To the white settlers, it was a sign of hope for a prosperous future. Until, of course, they did the math. Slaves in Brazoria, just north of Jackson County, staged a revolt, and though it was quickly put down, it still sent a shockwave of fear and paranoia throughout the state. Rumors spread of a grand plot by rebel slaves to turn the tables on the masters, to force them into bondage and create an underground cotton trade through New Orleans to establish a literal black market. It was the Texians' ultimate ironic nightmare. In an effort to send a message to other slaves and assuage the settlers' well-deserved fears, nearly 100 enslaved men in Brazoria were lashed to the brink of death and hanged. A renegade slave capable of evading capture for a decade, trespassing on their land and inside their homes, unseen and without consequence, was, well, not a popular narrative. The foundation of their entire civilization was built on the inherent supremacy of white culture, its righteous domination of nature and its savages. To even acknowledge that there were cracks in that foundation, that it could be so easily subverted, or worse, inverted, was to surrender their civilization to failure. And on the frontier, the only terms of surrender were those signed, sealed, and delivered by death. After nearly seven years of the bizarre home invasions, 
stories of the mysterious thing evading dogs to steal butter were starting to see diminishing returns in the press. It was kind of passe. So the thing, never one to disappoint the press, started stepping up its game. A farmer had been fattening up a hog to make food for his slaves, and it was almost ready for slaughter. But when he opened the pen one morning, what he found shook him to the core. Somehow, during those few dark hours of the night, the hog had shriveled to a thin, ailing husk. It no longer recognized him, like it had gone feral. But that was impossible. Someone must have snuck into the pen during the night and replaced his porker with this pitiful wretch of a swine. But how? His dogs had fought and killed a bear outside the pen only a few nights before. Their senses were still on edge, their fur still matted with blood. As far as the farmer was concerned, there was only one reasonable explanation. Witchcraft. There's no use fattening the new porker, he said. The negroes wouldn't have eaten a mouthful of it, short of starvation. He wasn't wrong. His slaves were convinced this thing that comes was some kind of malevolent spirit bent on sowing chaos. The hog had been cursed by this ghost witch, and to eat it would be to take that curse upon themselves. Superstitions about the thing spread to slaves at plantations throughout the region, and not just by whispered hearsay. Reports of fattened swine transforming overnight into weak, feral hogs were rampant. It seemed the thing that comes had a new M.O., and for the Alabama settlers, it was more than theft. It was a living metaphor for their darkest fears. Like most Anglos in the 19th century, they thought too much exposure to the untamed wilds had the power to transform the mind, body, and soul of man and animal alike. These hogs had been hexed, transformed by wild forces into something sinful, savage, and strange. To them, nature was a feminine beast, uniquely capable of giving life and bounty, but like anything feminine and fertile, it had to be tethered, tamed, and dominated. Nature, otherwise left to its own devices, was dangerous, unpredictable, and free, and she terrified them. Stephen F. Austin once referred to the indigenous tribes of Texas as the universal enemies to man, and said the first step to civilizing the Texas wilderness was to quote, clear the roughness, or in less ethereal terms, extermination by genocide. The Alabama settlement had only been in existence for a few months before a vigilante group was formed to seek revenge on a local tribe for the theft of livestock and farm tools. Why does that sound so familiar? They ambushed the Indian camp, forcing the natives to retreat into the woods. Samuel Rogers' son later bragged that his father had shot one of the natives in the back as he fled. The corpse of the wounded native showed up on his property a few days later, the failed retribution of a dying man. Well, as they tell it, anyways. Whether the story is true or not, what really matters is the intent behind it. Rogers proudly boasted until the day he died that he'd sawed off the Indian's head and kept the skull as a trophy. Determined to clear the roughness, the Alabama settlers waged a decade-long campaign of wholesale slaughter punctuated by a massacre on the banks of the Guadalupe that wiped out the last known band of Caroncawas. By 1840, the Texians had permanently driven all indigenous people from the watershed. Well, as they tell it anyway. As stories of the midnight crop thieves first began to circulate, some folks floated the theory that they could be stray remnants of the vanquished native tribes. 
but it wasn't especially well received. The similarities between the Wild People's MO and that of the natives was pretty striking, but much like the runaway slave theory, it ran counter to the official Texian narrative. After all, through the vigilance of the settlers and the righteous hand of Providence, the Indian threat had been eradicated, right? In a series of articles, the Victoria Texian advocate claimed, baselessly, that there were entire tribes of wild people hidden away in the Navidad forests. In the description of these so-called tribal societies, the advocate even used Native Americans as their basis of comparison, but never gave a moment's thought to the possibility that they might be one and the same. McKinney dismissed the theory outright, saying, The conduct was foreign to the Indian character. Indians would not have been so secluded. They would have committed more mischief. Or less. Sure. He was, at the absolute very, very least, willing to concede that the footprints were, quote, The correct size. Cool. As the novelty of hog swapping began to wear thin, a new discovery catapulted the wild people back onto the front page. Hunters claimed to have stumbled across a strange setup in a small clearing deep in the woods. It wasn't a campsite exactly, at least as far as they could tell. There were no signs of shelter, bedding, gear, or even a fire. Just a few piles of sugar cane, cut cleanly into short pieces and partially chewed. It has a knife and knows how to use it. Stranger still, there were lengths of cotton bark twisted into what they called curious strings hanging from the branches of the surrounding trees. Is it a message? A warning? Is this witchcraft? Is this art? Witchcraft? What is art? Witchcraft? The hunters set a watch on the camp for several days, but the creature never returned. As they were packing up to head home, one of the hunters noticed some small footprints not far from the camp. Fresh ones. The hunters recruited a search party, including a pack of dogs specially trained to hunt down runaway slaves. Within moments of reaching the camp, the dogs seized on a trail and bolted after their target. The eagerness of their pursuit meant the thing was nearby, and the men were convinced they had it for sure this time. But when they breathlessly caught up to the dogs, they found them standing at the edge of a swamp, confused and staring out at the stagnant waters. And for months, there was just nothing. And then, miles away from the swamp where the thing had vanished, another group of hunters noticed some familiar strings of cotton bark dangling from the trees. They followed them into a clearing, and though there was no trace of a fire, clothing, or even basic shelter in the biting winter cold, there was no doubt in their minds that this was a campsite. Its campsite. There were rabbit snares crafted from bark, crudely woven baskets, and a primitive bed made of gathered moss and leaves. They also found a cache of items stolen from homes in the moonlight raids. Spoons, table knives, a cup, and other basics. But what they found last fascinated and frightened them the most. Several perfectly kept books, meticulously stacked and carefully sheltered in a makeshift cubby made of twigs. It's looking for something. It's just grabbing random items in the dark. Can it read? Can't talk. Stuck between the pages of one book was a personal letter addressed to a local woman one who'd previously reported being a victim of a bizarre, seemingly impossible home burglary. That alone was enough to make headlines, but it was a Bible, inscribed with the family tree of a prominent local family. That really pushed things over the top. It's one of us. She's one of us. 
The camp discoveries upended the whole story and became the crucial difference between a forgettable puff piece in the Sunday Penny Press and a legend that's still being talked about on some obscure podcast a century and a half later. It's probably best summed up by a single line from the Victoria Texian Advocate. The footprints, they wrote, resemble that of a small, delicate female. And with that, the thing that comes finally had a name. One that would come to outlive the very papers that coined it. The Wild Woman of the Navidad. The Advocate reported on other items they claim were found at the camps. Items they, and most people at the time, considered exclusively feminine. Fine thread, a distaff, and, as they put it, hair found wrapped around a finger like a woman does. Yeah, we had to look up what distaff meant. The first definition is a tool used for spinning wool. The second is work of concern to women. The paper went on to say, The idea of children being raised up in such conditions was harrowing to every mother and women in general. We're willing to bet the report wasn't labeled as an op-ed. But this new feminine angle in the press coverage sparked a massive shift in public opinion. The poor creature, McKinney wrote, was welcome a hundred times to what she took in her little forays, harmless to others but so dangerous to herself. Settlers began posting signs and letters on trees around the camps and other places she was known to go, reaching out with promises of friends, comfort, home. A local eccentric bachelor named Moses Evans, who happened to go by the nickname of the Wild Man of the Woods, wrote several funny love letters and published them in the local papers. The joke letters were picked up by outlets all over the country, and this new, sympathetic view of the wild woman took the Navidad settlement by storm. The local papers offered rewards, including up to 40 cows, for her capture and safe return to the open arms of white civilization. Similar offers were put forth by other people and outlets, but what if the so-called wild woman of the Navidad turned out to be someone, or something, they weren't expecting? It just didn't add up. If this poor child, this girl, really were an orphan of war, wandering the woods alone, hungry, and grieving the loss of her only companion, why not simply reveal herself? Why not rush back into the warm, safe embrace of the civilized, white world, where she so clearly belonged? Something wasn't right. Someone or something must have gotten to her, changed her. Young men working the local farms started arranging stakeouts in their fields, hoping to catch her in the act. Sure, the rewards were pretty enticing, but it's important to remember that this new wave of wild woman furor was totally predicated on the belief that this was a woman. A woman who was lost in the wilderness, unable to speak, delicate, small, naked, and alone. We obviously can't assume the true intentions of these young male farmhands what they might have done had they caught her. Because every trap they set, she evaded with almost inhuman ease. A man who was charged with keeping watch over a corn crib fell asleep on the job, only to be roused hours later by a rustling among the stalks. He couldn't see anything, but he would later claim he was so completely consumed by a supernatural feeling of dread that he could hardly move. All he could do was scream. And as if startled by the sound, the creature, as he called it, disappeared from the cornrows in one single leap. 
On the third night of a similar stakeout, a group of young men were hiding among some potato vines when a shadowy form appeared in the darkness. It was a woman, thin, naked, and covered head to toe in short, brown fur. They leapt up to grab her, but she bolted off into the woods so quickly they couldn't possibly follow, and in doing so, they said, she made no audible sound at all. The need for closure had reached a fever pitch, and the Alabama settlers, desperate to know the story's end, for better or worse, decided to take action. So they gathered some of the region's best hunters and organized massive search parties, sweeping the fields and forests in coordinated lines with leashed hounds at the vanguard and horsemen at the flank. After a few nights, the scouts finally turned up fresh tracks. She couldn't be more than a quarter mile away. The hunters loosed the dogs and formed a perimeter at the tree line. These were seasoned hunting dogs, experienced with all manner of blackland critters and trained to make specific yelps or cries as they closed in on their quarry, so the men knew what to expect when they rode up. And they had cries for damn near everything. Bears, foxes, rabbits, humans. The hunters barely had time to complete their formations before the hound's cries rang out through the trees. They'd found her. But something wasn't right. The cries were off. Whatever the hounds had tracked and cornered in the woods that night was something they'd never encountered before, something that scared them. With all eyes on the dark between the trees, the faint snap of a twig caught the attention of a mounted hunter at the far end of the line. It was her, the thing. She froze for a moment like a frightened deer, a black silhouette in the moonlight, face and body obscured in fur the hair from her head long enough to touch the ground and waving like banners in the wind. His eyes locked with hers, two tiny white lights in a sea of shadow, frightened and wild. And then she ran. The hunter took off in pursuit, but she bolted through the prairie so fast his horse was struggling to keep pace. Four times he had her within range of his lasso, but each time he threw, the horse bucked in fear and the rope fell short. The wild woman took a final, fearful glance over her shoulder, then cut suddenly toward the tree line, dropped whatever she was carrying, and disappeared into the night. Shaken and confused, the horseman doubled back to find whatever it was she'd left behind. Glistening there in the grass was a club, five feet long, and polished to a wonder. Several years went by without sighting her incident. Some folks thought she died, others figured her encounter with the hunters was enough to scare her off for good. Or maybe she'd just moved on. The press soon did the same, and her memory began to fade. The severe winter of 1850 covered the land in layers of sleet and snow, and a Navidad farmer happened upon a set of small footprints leading into the woods, barefoot despite the cold. He tracked them to a felled tree, and clearing the thick brush from beneath it revealed some kind of tiny, makeshift campsite. There was no fire or bedding, just a few DIY snares made of knotted bark and sticks of chewed sugarcane, cut short with a knife and stacked in meticulous little piles. The discovery sparked a media firestorm, and once the worst of the winter passed, the settlers formed a search party to comb the riverside. Armed and mounted hunters spread out through the area until the dogs caught the scent and charged deep into the woods. The men found them barking and snarling at the base of a giant oak tree where a shadowy figure clung to the branches high up in the canopy. They drew their guns and strained to see anything more than the figure's eyes, which almost seemed to glow in the moonlight. 
As they approached the base of the tree, they finally got a clear look at him. A black man, middle-aged, naked and afraid. They were surprised, confused, and more than a little disappointed. Surely this was just another escaped slave from the plantation up the road. She must have crossed the slave's path and threw off the dogs. And dog cries did change about a half mile back. You heard that, right? Maybe she did it on purpose. The distraction. They raised their guns at the man, but he just waved his hand like he was shooing them away. He wasn't afraid of them at all. Almost as though he didn't know what they were. But that couldn't be. Who do you belong to? They shouted up at him. He said nothing, just kept shooing them away. The hunters tried a few more questions, but he didn't seem to understand them. There's no record of how they finally managed to get him out of the tree, but whether it was voluntary or violent, any gestures of goodwill they might have employed evaporated the moment his feet touched the ground. The hunters bound his hands and dragged him to a patch of fresh mud, where, with a rifle pressed to his spine, he was forced to trudge forward while they inspected the impressions he left behind in the mud. Whether by memory of newspaper illustrations or just pure imagination, they compared them to the footprints of the wild woman that they'd never personally seen. They immediately and begrudgingly declared the prints a match based on the only criteria they knew. The man's feet seemed kind of small for, you know, a racist stereotype. And with that, the story of the wild woman was flipped on its head. This was no longer a sympathetic case of the civilized gone wild but rather a case of the wild in its natural state. The open arms of white civilization closed tight, the love letters were torn down, and the harmless, lost little girl made bestial by the wild was transformed once more. Now this creature was inhuman, beyond redemption, a violator, a born savage, and it always had been. Up became down, the moment female became male, and white became black. They marched him out of the woods and into the local jail. They'd dealt with plenty of runaway slaves in their day, but never one like this. He had no understanding of English and no use for clothes, and stranger still, he bore no scars from a master's lash. Bills were posted all over the settlement, like flyers on a telephone pole advertising a found dog, but none of the plantation owners came to claim him. Some of the settlers, Samuel Rogers among them, who'd followed and lived this story for more than 15 years, found that ending less than satisfying. She was still out there. She had to be. This man was incapable of even speaking, much less feats of the supernatural. It was ridiculous. They were men of God, the superior race, the standard bearers of civilization, righteous and strong. There was no way they were wrong about this. They were never wrong. The story is what's wrong. It was a mistake, a conspiracy, witchcraft. Even those who accepted the story found a way to spin, distort, and rationalize the truth away. If the facts didn't back up their worldview, it was no problem. They just manufactured some that did. Another thing that 200 years later, we can still- Dude, they get it. Right, sorry. As historian Victor M. Rose put it, The wild woman of the Navidad proved to be a man of some 50 years of age, a wild savage African, black as ebony, who grinned horribly and seemed to be ejaculating in some gibberish, unknown tongues of man. A slave would speak English, they thought, wear clothes, and having been rescued from his sin and savagery would surely have felt safe and happy, even grateful. Surely no African given shelter, food, and a purpose in the providence of white civilization would ever want to return to the chaos and darkness of the wild. 
In civilization, there was redemption. In slavery, they were free. Whatever story they believed, this wasn't the ending they'd hoped for. To them, this man in the cell was just some useless, unclaimed property, deserving of even less human dignity than a supernatural forest monster who breaks into their houses at night to steal their butter. So they left him there for months, naked in a cage. That is, until a sailor freshly returned from a voyage to the African coast just happened to drop by a tiny jailhouse in Jackson County and just happened to speak the prisoner's native language. From what the sailor was able to piece together, the man was forsaken by his own tribe in Africa and sold into slavery by his own father for just a knife and a pouch of tobacco. He described the horror and misery of crossing the ocean in the darkness of a ship's hold crammed shoulder to shoulder with strangers, chained to them, chained to the floor, unable to move, ankle deep in blood, excrement, and the corpses of the starved. He told of the overwhelming shock and confusion he felt as they dragged him into the sunlight of a strange new land, one where he was no longer human. The men who held the chains took him to a large house by a cane field and locked him in a crowded barn with dozens of others, including one familiar face, Another member of his own tribe, a man who shared his language and his unbreakable will to be free. Within a matter of days, they'd planned and pulled off a near-impossible escape. He didn't give details, saying they saw an opportunity and they took it, bolting at top speed for the darkness beyond the tree line. He didn't know how long they were running, saying only that they crossed a great many prairies and rivers, but he couldn't say how many or where. They were perpetually on the brink of starvation, surviving only by his companion's talent for hunting with a club. They finally stopped running at the intersection of two rivers, a place where dense forests gave them shelter and obscurity, a place with sweet potatoes and sugarcane aplenty, and where the men who held the chains were too caught up in their own problems to notice their occasional scavenging in the night. When the sailor asked why they never engaged with other slaves in the settlement, he said they were too afraid. The slaves spoke in strange tongues and wore the cloth of their captors. He assumed they were cannibals. When his companion died, he not only lost the ability to hunt for food, he lost his only connection to another human being. He found himself alone in a strange and terrible world, desperate, hungry, and afraid. He began foraging in settlers' homes as a last resort, claiming he knew a certain hour of the night, depending on the phase of the moon, when dogs slept so soundly you could step right over them. He never explained why he was so equitable in his thefts or why he was so mindful of the settler's belongings. Given the circumstances and what had been done to him, it's almost hard to believe. But then again, even when the sailor asked how he managed to pull off the hog swapping trick, he again took the ethical high road. It's simple, he said, but if he gave away the secret, it put slaves at risk, and cannibals or not, that was something he just couldn't abide. We have no idea if the sailor's translation is accurate or if he even existed at all. But if there's any truth to it, the so-called wild man seems like a pretty good dude. The men who held the chains, however, were not. They wanted to clear the jail cell, so they listed him as a stray negro and auctioned him off for $207. The buyer, a man named P.T. Bickford, gave him the name Old Jimbo and quote, turned him loose amongst his other negros, and according to the nature of his race, he remained content in his new home. All but one source we found stuck to the same official narrative, 
Finally estranged from his savage roots in the wild, old Jimbo was able to live a long, happy life on Bickford's plantation, finding his salvation in chains. The Houston Telegraph ran a headline declaring, Thus solves the mystery that has hitherto given the romantic interest to the story. And the press moved on to the next sensation. But our most comprehensive and modern source, a brilliant dissertation by Eric D. Anderson, tells a different story. Shortly after being sold to Bickford, Jimbo saw his opportunity and once again, he took it. He ran through the forest for so many miles that by the time the horsemen and hounds closed in, he found himself in familiar wilderness, the closest thing to a home he ever knew. And there on the banks of the Navidad, he tasted freedom for the very last time. The slave catchers dragged him back to Bigford's plantation, and despite the conflicting accounts of the man's remaining years, they all agree on one thing. He died there. There's countless examples of regional stories that barely make it into the footnotes of academic history, and this is one of those stories. We only have a handful of credible sources to draw from, and nearly all of them, Rogers, McKinney, were all part of the story themselves. They were locals, witnesses, contemporaries, and victims, projecting their own fears and prejudices onto the historical record. And over the years, folklore seeped in to fill the gaps. We usually think of folklore as tall tales, allegory, or misguided attempts by our ancestors to explain with superstition the things they didn't have the science to fully understand. Folklore, more often than not, is just the darker, sexier, campfire version of history's banal, rational truths. But this story is sort of unique. Here the folklore serves as a front for the bigotry, ignorance, and incompetence of that place and time, whitewashing it in legend. It's a sugar-coated cover story for something much darker than any campfire tale. The truth. Whether it's 1836 or 2018, it's just easier for us to invent an elaborate fantasy or buy into one than it is to accept the simple reality that sometimes we're just wrong. It's true that the Blackland riverbanks and lush forests of the Navidad really did play host to dark, monstrous things. But the shadows lurking among the trees were our own. Slavery, hatred, war. Maybe the tales of the wild woman were just a much needed distraction from the wreckage of war and the painful hardships of life on the frontier. Maybe it was a deep-rooted, subconscious desire to validate the settlers' own prejudices, to rationalize their irrationality, and find somewhere to place the blame, no matter how far they had to reach. Maybe it's just part of human nature, that primal longing for something beyond the ordinary. Something to capture our imagination and distract us from the toil and struggles of everyday life, whether it spirits us away to fantasy or drags us screaming into the darkness. Maybe if we believe that some things really can escape the confines of our nightmares, it gives us hope that, in a way, maybe we can too. There's no shortage of ghouls in the graveyard of history, and Texas certainly has its fair share. But if we want to avoid repeating the mistakes and atrocities of our ancestors, if we want the cemetery gates to hold, we have to confront and understand some uncomfortable truths Sometimes we have to follow the footprints into the darkness beyond the tree line. Sometimes we have to put ourselves, if only for a moment, in the shoes of ghosts. 
It's hard to truly and completely understand Texas history without suspending your disbelief every now and then. That might sound like a contradiction, but it's more like an understated exaggeration, a hyperbolic truth. This land, our home, is and always has been a crossroads between worlds. It's a place where redemption and cruelty, radicals and reactionaries, saints and killers, dreams and nightmares walk side by side if they're not already one and the same. Just remember, everything you might have heard about us is wrong, and all of it is true. Welcome to Texas. Texarkana is written and produced by us, Ryan Sheffield and Brad Dewar. Recorded here in beautiful Denton, Texas. Home of happiness. Our theme music and this episode's outro song are by Whiskey Folk Ramblers of Dallas, Fort Worth, and everywhere in between. Additional music by Less Than One, used under Creative Commons public license and available at freemusicarchive.org. You can find us at texarcanapodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at texarcanapodcast. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us on Patreon, because the more support we have, the more Texarkana we can make. Thanks for listening, y'all. Let's get on.